0: This is Solve It for Kids.
1: Hello my amazing and curious friends. My name is Jennifer, the Dean of All Things STEM and, STEAM, and this is Solve It for Kids, the podcast that gives kids and families a peek inside the real world of scientists, engineers, and experts as they solve problems in their jobs using creativity, cooperation, and critical thinking. And now please welcome to the show my podcast partner, Galactic Space Geek, Jeff Ganya.
0: Hello, Jennifer, and hello listeners. I am buzzing about this episode, Jennifer, <laughs> so let's please get right to it. Oh,
1: is that a hint, Jeff?
0: Is no, that a not hint? at
1: all. What problem are we solving today?
0: How do you protect native bees?
1: How can we support native bee populations? Ooh, this is going to be an
0: excellent episode. Who is our guest today, Jeff? Our guest today is the wonderful Julie Travellini. She is currently the Senior Director of Education and Curriculum for the Allegheny Land Trust and a bee lover.
1: Welcome to the show, Julie.
2: Thanks so much for having me. Bee expert is generous. Bee lover.
1: Oh,
0: there
2: you go. Okay. Be
1: enthusiastic. I like it. Yeah, but that's what we're going to talk about today. And And I think this is so intriguing and exciting to learn about, you know, one of nature's important creatures. So I have to ask, did you always love bees ever since you were a kid? I was always a nature nerd. I was
2: uh, always that kid who was okay. outside eating dirt, playing with worms. <laughs> <laughs> I will say I was terrified of bees as a kid. It took me until I was older. I, w- I would run from bees when I was Most younger. of us did. Did it? I mean, as a
1: kid. Yeah, I, I would see and just
2: scream and run. It was crazy. But now they're <laughs> some of my favorite creatures. So it's funny how the tides turn a bit. But always a nature nerd, always into playing outside. I was always messy as a kid. Yeah. I'm sure my mom hosed me off, you know, every day I had to get
0: hosed off. (laughs) Nice. That That sounds fun. That
1: sounds fun. Nice.
0: So as a nature nerd, what did you then progress to, whether it be high school into college, what sort of, was there a trigger that said, I am going to do this as a career (laughs) I want to do with my life? I think I always wanted to go into
2: the sciences for sure. In the natural sciences, so I took pretty much every science class our high school offered, anything from biology to earth and space science to anatomy, you know, I took all of it, used my elective space to take more science classes. Yeah, science! I know, right? I know, I, I messed up the science credits for sure. And then I went into college and I knew I wanted to do the sciences as well. I actually started off as a conservation science major, so... Conserving resources in the natural world, but I found that there was a lot of economics and a lot of non sciencey work that went right. into it. Yeah. I really missed that science aspect. So I switched to biology and I did biology with a focus in the natural sciences, environmental science. So that was kind of how I got into that. I did an internship teaching environmental science at an arboretum in Ohio and fell in love with doing environmental ed. And I've been doing that since I was 19 now. So
1: pretty much half my life. I'm 36.
2: So yeah, half my life I've been doing environmental education.
1: I mean, that's so cool. That's really something that you can get your hands on with kids and adults too, for that matter. We could all learn more about the environment. So what kind of drew you to bees then? I'm curious, you know, since you were like, "Ah, I didn't like them as a kid, how did you get to be okay with them now? I think learning about the
2: fascinating biology behind the bees is what really oh. got me interesting they're such fascinating creatures in the way they live and the way they interact with one another and the roles they play in the ecosystem I think that was what really triggered me to want to learn more about bees and I always share this fun fact with children and adults alike that I'm based out of Pittsburgh Pennsylvania and okay. here in Pennsylvania we actually are home to more species of bees than birds so we have 434 wow. bee species in Pennsylvania and 414 bird species that is a mind blowing fact most people can name maybe half a dozen type of bees um, wow. at most and you know we have over 400 species so the diversity is incredible it's insane and there's always more to learn about them. I think I find a new type of bee every time I go for a hike, which is so exciting and so much fun. And just learning more about how they live and how important they are has just really, wow. been, you know, a huge piece of my
0: work the last few years. Okay. So I have to ask you just said that many species of bee, yeah. and yeah. you find a different kind of bee every time you go for a hike. Wow. How are you noticing? Oh. Bees are so small. How are you noticing <laughs> every time that you go out that oh. you see a different one? Is it a different design, different stripes? How do you notice So, it
2: I hike at what I call an educational pace, which is very, very, very <laughs> slow. The last time I we went for a hike, it took that. me two and a half hours to go less than a mile. Oh, wow. So, oh. We are stopping a lot. We are noticing. I stop at any kind of big patch of flowers and just look and notice. And you're looking for size. You're looking for color. You're looking for patterns. You're looking for different antenna type. So it's, okay. most people think of being, they think black and yellow stripes, but there are red bees, there are green bees, there are blue bees. You know, we have bees of all different colors and shapes and sizes. So lots of diversity out there to look for.
1: Oh my gosh, I had no idea. Blue?
2: Yeah, yeah. Red bees. Oh my gosh. Now I'm gonna have to go
1: look these up. Now, are those only found in your area? I assume that that there are certain bees in certain places of the country. Sure, but you know, bees are pretty widespread.
2: So the bees we have here in Pennsylvania are gonna be fairly typical of most of the northeast. So most of the northeast has pretty tremendous bee diversity. You know, I can only imagine the bee diversity of living in a more tropical region like Florida
1: or Southwest is like a whole other world for me. (laughs) Now you've made me curious because that's where I live. So now I might have to figure out what kind of bees are living around me. I mean, also, how did you overcome your fear of getting close to them? (laughs) Because I still have that (laughs) a little bit. (laughs) Yeah,
2: I think learning that most bees don't sting really helped. (laughs)
0: <laughs> really oh yes okay. that's yes. a great so, place to start
2: yeah male bees are not stingers the stinger is actually a modified ovipositor of a bee so only the females have them so any male bee is completely unable to sting has no ability to sting whatsoever so there you are eliminating half the bees right there that can possibly sting you I didn't know uh, that oh, so yeah. that was a really great <laughs>
0: That helped me a lot. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, yeah, my odds are immediately better of
2: not getting (laughs) (laughs)
1: stung.
0: Okay, so I have to ask again on the colors, because I did not know there were red bees or blue bees. Yeah. So are those bees, did they evolve that way based on their habitat, or are they a completely different Like, type of bee? I don't even know if that's a good question to ask. Yeah.
2: Yeah, Well, there are seven families of bees in the world. And here in Pennsylvania, we have six of the seven. Most of the United States can probably say the same thing. One family of the bees is Australia specific. So, you know, we won't have that bee, but we do have most of the other families of bees. So, wow. We've got a. out of evolutionary history happening with the bees they've all evolved very differently they all have very different behaviors and nesting and you know food preferences some are even kleptoparasites which means they will steal food from other bees so oh, we, uh, yeah yeah a lot punks. of really interesting evolution behind. <laughs> <being a pup. laughs> it's believed that bees evolved from wasps actually as because wasps are predators wasps are out eating other insects generally yes so when they were on the flowers and they were eating insects that were on flowers they were ingesting some of the pollen so it's believed the bees evolved from the ingesting of pollen from wasps so they kind of diverged in that direction yeah
1: i had no idea about all of this okay so now i want to ask about kind of what we were talking about so how can we support native bee populations i mean the first one is you know don't kill bees right like if they're coming at you don't swat them away but is there other things that we can do to support native bee populations
2: yeah i mean that very first step that you take is to learn more about them to kind of squash yes. your fear because the more you know the less fearful you are of yes. anything you know that goes for anything beyond nature even too so the more you know <laughs> that's the less very <laughs> that's very <Yes>. true that's very true yes so learning about them helps that means you're going to protect them you know it's hard to protect something you don't truly understand so you're you're gonna want to protect them and not squish them one of the best things you can do to support native bees is to plant native plants oh. so when you're planting out oh. your garden planting plants that are native or supposed to be in your area is the best way to support those bees because that's what they see as their food source so when you plant non-native plants and non-native trees and non-native shrubs those aren't a recognized food source so you're not going to attract nearly as many pollinators especially bees to those plants because they're not going to see it as their food source. Yeah, so you always want to sense. try to plant, yeah, you always want to try to plant native plants and you want to try to plant native plants that bloom all year too. So you want to have plants that bloom in the spring for our bees that wake up really early after a cold winter. If you live in a place where there is winter, <laughs> like I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I so don't <laughs> the bees coming out right after the snow and then having something that blooms through the summer and into the fall as well to support them before they go into hibernation. So making yeah. sure you're planting a variety of native plants that are going to support the bees. Throughout the four or three seasons, I should say, they're hibernating in winter. But So being able to support them and their needs through as many seasons as possible is
0: really important. That's good. Yeah. Okay. I know we're going to keep talking about these bee habitats and helping them. I wonder if we're planting flowers to help the bees and native plants. I wonder, do people worry? Like, I, it's a thought in my head right now. Are we inviting them to create a hive nearby so we're going to end up with too many bees near our house or near where we did Hmm. that?
2: Yeah, it's a common misconception that... All bees make hives. It's actually very rare. So ninety to ninety-five uh-huh. percent of all bees are solitary, which means they do not live well, in a large hive <laughs> like yeah. our honeybees. we right. think of bees, we tend to think of our honeybees, which do right. live in sure. what's called a eusocial hive. Eusociality is like the highest form of social living in nature. That means that they have individual jobs, like nurse bees and worker right. bees, and drone bees and that they live in multi-generational hives as well. So there will okay. be more than one generation. in right, the right. hive. So that's kind of like your top form of sociality within nature is that you social and honeybees are truly you social, but that is very rare. Most bees, 90 to 95% are solitary, meaning they live on their own. They
1: wow. create
2: their nests to lay one egg at a time hmm. in their Nest and their nest can range from underground, a hole underground to a hole in oh. Most commonly, it's going to be in the stem of a plant, is where they oh. nest. So, they, yes, yes. So, I didn't know that. Yeah, you're not gonna end up with too many bees because forming that hive is really unique to only a few types of bees.
0: Oh. Okay,
1: yeah, I did. I mean, <laughs> the, the, the more you know, right? Well, you know, it's kind of funny because you know, as I think what most of us know are are exactly what you described, the honeybees, you know, Mm -hmm. that they're the ones who actually form the hive. And and we think about the black and white bees and the bumblebees and, you know, all of those kinds of things. So, I mean, wow. I mean, I'm really surprised by all of this. So we've also heard that the bee populations are going down and whatever. Is that all bee populations or again are we just hearing about the honeybees I'm just curious yeah so I'm gonna get on my
2: honeybee
0: <laughs> my
1: honeybee tangent here okay
2: when, when people say save the bees the most common image associated with that is the honeybee right but we have domesticated the honeybee the honeybee is a farmed creature when oh. we're saying save the bees we mean the native bees because those are the populations really being affected by habitat loss and by pollution when we say western honeybee we do not mean we mean western asia and western europe oh okay to our area honeybees did not even cross the rocky mountains until like the 1840s so Honeybees are not native to our area. We farm them. We farm them by the trillions. We truck them across the country to agricultural areas to help with pollination. So they're not ones we need to be truly concerned about. Honeybees aren't even our best pollinators. So honeybees are generalists.
0: They do not have the specific
2: (laughs) body parts to attach extra pollen. So bees like our carter bees and our resin bees, our mason bees... They're actually better pollinators because they have specialized body parts that attach more pollen to their abdomen and to their legs. Yeah, so they're pollinating more than our honeybees are. Our honeybees can only attach pollen to their legs, so they can only carry a tiny amount. So pollinators... I'm, I'm telling you, they get all the credit and they're not doing most of the work.
1: They, have, they must have very good like marketing PR people, right? Like, exactly.
2: <laughs> we somehow honed in on that creature. It's kind of the same with the butterflies too. You know, we had that big push to save the monarch. You know, the monarchs yes. are cool now. Their numbers went up over 200%. It's time to start looking at some of the other species <laughs> of butterflies. Huh. Some of our other creatures that need help too. You know, we... We tend to find one really charismatic creature and focus on it yeah. with the straws. It was yes. the sea turtles. So it's the honeybees turn for that, I suppose. But in reality, it's you know the 433 other species that we have in Pennsylvania oh that we really to focus I on. I had
1: it. I mean, I had no idea about all of these different bees. I mean, it came into Ditto. this thinking, oh, we're gonna talk about the little bumblebees and the honeybees. <laughs> wow, you're mind blowing and- with this.
0: Really. And thank goodness we have you on the show because a lot of our listeners are going to be having this same mind blowing. So <laughs> getting back to how we can help, what does it mean aside from is it just planting flowers and then hope in the next few weeks you see some bees come along and start sucking on them or are there other <laughs> things that we can do to help?
2: No, we can do a lot to support native bee populations. something that's really important to do is to leave your garden go over the winter. So it's really tempting once oh. all of your flowers have bloomed and all of your plants have bloomed to cut it down and kind of make it look nice and empty for the winter. But the best thing you can do is leave all of that stuff in your flower bed right. because bees are going to use those flower stems to nest over the winter.
1: Oh. And they're going to use... Never knew
2: that. Yeah. So they're going to hibernate in things like the flower stems or the stalks of... Some of your bigger flowers, they're going to hibernate in the leaf litter in your garden. So it's really important to leave all of that stuff until the springtime so that the bees have a place to hibernate and be protected and spend the winter so that when spring rolls around, they can
1: emerge and, you know, immediately start foraging for flowers. Wow. I mean, that's fascinating. It is. So now I have to ask this because, you know, I live in the land of manicured lawns. Yes. So let's talk about how that is affecting. I mean, and, you know, if you're in a homeowners association or whatever, you know, it's difficult to not spray your lawn or Mm -hmm. keep your grass looking really green. But I'm, from what I'm understanding, that is not a great thing for bees and other creatures.
2: The manicured lawn is one of the biggest plights (laughs) that we've got Mm -hmm. going on right now.
1: I don't know how we
2: got into this mindset that. A complete monoculture of grass is the way to go. Yes. But that does not support biodiversity of any sort, you know, fungal, insect, like it doesn't support anything, truly. Mm -hmm. So it's hard, but a lot of cities are starting to change their rules about that because they're starting to realize that we've got to do more and we've got to do more to support biodiversity. There's been a lot on the news circulating about the insect collapse and how right. the numbers of insects in general are just going down everywhere. And as that goes down, that disrupts the entire ecosystem. right. So I think a lot of cities are starting to come to their senses that it's okay to have plants over eight inches tall. <laughs> <And> <laughs> <laughs> the eight-inch rule is like, not it doesn't have, have to, plants over eight inches, you know. And but, it
1: doesn't have to be green. So, so what we've done actually in ours, and I don't know, I was gonna ask you about this is So our front lawn, you know, what everyone sees has to be pretty. But in the back, we've added, you know, we don't spray or, you know, it's not as much spray, whatever. And we have kind of like a natural kind of forest or whatever behind us. And we promote stuff like that. So that's something people can do, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Spraying is no good for anybody. It's no good for you. It's no good for your pets. It's no good for your insects. And there's a study out of a college that. I forget which college, it was somewhere in the Northeast. They did a study about spraying pesticides and the instances of cancer in your pets and how there was a positive correlation with the more you sprayed or the more likely you were to spray, the higher the chance your pet had of getting a certain type of cancer. Because you have to think when you're spraying your grasses and your plants, your pets are coming into contact with that every single day yeah it's coming through it's absorbing through the pads of their feet you know they're sticking their face in the grass so spraying is not just bad for the bees and the bugs you know it's not great for anything truly I don't spray at all I spray nothing my backyard is actually a certified backyard habitat through the Audubon Society so I'm not allowed to spray anything oh that's Um, cool Yeah, it's a really cool program through your local Audubon societies where you can get some help on how to best support wildlife in your backyard. And they'll help you pick out plants and they'll help you pick out bird feeders and all sorts of different things to help your yard support wildlife. So it's
0: a really cool program. That sounds cool. Yeah. I can totally envision listeners, especially kids of a certain age, like a certified backyard that's a good backyard for wherever you live. That sounds great. Yeah, the whole goal of the program
2: is to start connecting these properties together so that we're making kind of a corridor of our own little right. parks, essentially, that. of our own little way stations for insects, and especially when they're migrating, too, to have stopover places as they're flying you know south for the winter, generally.
0: Sure.
2: So it's, it's a really cool program. It's a, a smaller version of, I don't know if you've heard of Doug Tallamy's Homegrown National Park. No. Um, yeah, that's a really cool program as well. It's uh trying to get Americans to focus on planting natives and rewilding their landscape instead of the manicured manicured mm-hmm. lawns and the whole goal of it is that if a certain percentage and it's a very small percentage of Americans would convert their lawn to native plantings, we would have more acreage than all of the u.s's national parks combined wow no If a very small percentage i forget the percentage it was like 20 ish percent maybe or less converted wow. their lawns that we would have more acreage of homegrown national parks so home right. parks.
1: Wow. yeah so
2: it's a really really cool program and that's and, on, you can follow that on different social medias as well. Homegrown National Park. And
1: anybody can do this. Anybody can sign up for this Audubon certified backyard. And, yeah, and absolutely. Information. I like totally want to do this. Last weekend, we went to Acadia National Park. I don't know if you either Oh, you. beautiful. Right. Yes. <laughs> oh my god! She
0: knows. I, was, yeah, ra- I mean, was if you've yeah. that's
1: your reaction. It's just like, wow. And, and yeah. if I could... Harness just even a tiny little bit of that in my backyard. (laughs) Hey, it'd be great for wildlife, but imagine the stress, freeness, Mm -hmm. right? You just go in your backyard and you imagine you're at Acadia. Oh my gosh, I'm going to have to look this up. This sounds so amazing.
2: Yeah, Acadia is where I first saw my first tri colored bumblebee. So I was very happy about that. Wow. (laughs) Very pretty bumblebee.
1: What colors? I got to ask real fast black, yellow, and white.
0: Wow. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I know Jennifer is going to get to our challenge here real quick. I want to bring us right back to the beginning. This has been so fascinating. I have learned so much. Can you give our listeners, both kids and grownups, can you give them a little more detail on what it means to go for a hike at an educational pace. <laughs> I loved that. And I'm stealing it from you. And I'm going to be sharing that.
2: There is no stealing in the educational world. It is lovingly borrowing.
0: <laughs> Can you just say a little bit more about why it's worth taking a hike at an educational place, not worrying about, oh man, we got more miles in than I thought we were going to (laughs) get. Right, right. It's so eye-opening. You know, I've been teaching
2: environmental education for close to 18 years now, and I still see something new every single time I go outside, every single time, because you take the time to look. I know it's, it's hard when you take kids outside and you take them outside to look, and they're like, "I don't see anything." I'm like, "Well, you scanned for half a second. <laughs> you
1: <didn't laughs> see anything. Slow
2: down. You have to like, look. Yeah, yeah. So you have to actually <laughs> open your eyeballs and look for more than a second on something. You know, flip over the rock. You know, put it back where you found it, but you'll know, flip over the rock yes. and see what's under yes, there. Yes, do not
1: pocket it and take it home. It's part of the right. Ecosystem. No, no, we
2: don't need to take any treasures home. We we need to leave the nature where it belongs. But you know." looking under logs and under rocks and the undersides of flowers some really cool bugs are uh, generally wow. on the undersides of flowers so like flipping over the flowers and the flower leaves and
0: okay looking
2: under the leaf litter to see what you find and i'm a big mushroom nerd too so that two and a half hour <laughs> hike found 80 species of mushroom
1: oh my gosh
0: 80. yeah I love So it's incredible what by. you
1: find when you just take the time to look and look really closely.
0: Yeah, that's, that's awesome.
1: And, you know, and that was the thing, again, talking about when we were at Acadia, I think we rush so fast through life these days mm-hmm. that you don't take a second and just, and that's when you're standing there staring at these gorgeous views and this these beautiful trees and water. You do like we were standing there for like 10, 15 minutes and Mm -hmm. my husband and my daughter and I were like, oh, I guess we should move on now. You know, but (laughs) you just scan from side to side and every time you looked, you would see something different. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and then we saw a seal's head pop up, you know, which is hard to see in the water. We didn't have binoculars, but we're (laughs) like, "Look, there's something out there. But, you know, I think that's maybe what you're trying to say, too, is. Just take the time to just yeah,
2: slow down a bit, enjoy it. Yeah. Don't rush to, you know, try to cram in you know the longest hike you can get in in two hours. You know, it's not not <laughs> it always has to be that way. You know, it's fine if you want to right. do that sometimes, but you know, the nice slow
1: educational pace is great too. It. That's gonna I, I do, love that. I think that's great. So okay, this has been so much fun. I mean, seriously, I did not know all of the stuff I just learned about the bees. <laughs> so. But now I'm curious, what challenge do you have for our listeners, Julie? Yes,
2: I am going to challenge your listeners to build their very own solitary bee box. And this bee box is going to be a nesting site for bees like leafcutter bees, resin bees, mason bees, carter bees, all kinds of solitary bees are going to be interested in using this box. And it's going to provide a place for them to raise their young so i'm challenging them to build their
1: very own
2: bee box to support some of those native bees okay
1: you're going to give us the information so we can put it on the website then right too absolutely yeah fantastic so everybody will go to our website solveforkids.com, and you can see on this episode page for this our chat with julie about how to build this i'm going to do this jeff you should are you going to do this with your daughter
0: Definitely. She has friends in the neighborhood. We could probably get all of them to make one. Uh, Yeah, that'd be, yeah, the more the better. And then I have a question. If neighborhood friends do this, do they keep all the boxes together? Should they put them all by one house and keep them all together? Or should you spread them out? I spread them out
2: that way. Different kind of populations of bees will have a chance to use them. And different okay. bees will be attracted to different yards for different reasons so you might get oh, a bunch of different types of bees right, nesting instead gotcha. of just one or two well Excellent. then you
1: guys can count all the different kind of species that you see out there Jeff, yeah so right? you yes, can identify the bees that are using your box.
0: that would be at fantastic. an educational pace
1: exactly <laughs> <laughs> i think jeff's gonna remember that phrase for a very oh my long gosh, time Fantastic. <laughs> Well, this has been a truly fabulous episode. It's been wonderful having you. Thank you so much for being on Solve for Kids, Julie. Thank you, Julie. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. I had a great time.
0: Jennifer, before this episode had started, if you had asked me to guess how many different species of bee, I would have been so wildly off. I would have had to do my own homework and give myself a report that I needed to complete within a certain amount of time. Oh my goodness, so many bees, and I learned so many things about bees that I did not know before this episode.
1: Exactly! I mean, ditto to everything you just said. I had no idea there were
0: this many bees. And they were different sizes, too different sizes, different Different colors. colors. Only half of them sting. Most of them don't particularly care about the humans around (laughs) anyway, so it's not like they're killer bees coming after us and we don't have to be afraid. But that's
1: not my experience, and probably most people's, right? (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, wow, I learned so much and I totally wanna do this challenge and build my own bee house in the backyard. How cool is that? Oh
0: my gosh. And the different ways yes. that you can do it. And the different effects of, like, if you're doing it in a neighborhood, how Julie told us that we definitely need to keep those separated yes. to create different colonies. Yeah. And the amount of information in this episode, like, I need to go back and listen to this again. Yeah,
1: it was mind-blowing. So if any of you go out and make your own bee house- Or you just like find one of those cool colored bees that Jeff and I were talking, we're looking for, I want to see. Send them to us. Tag us on our social media. We are at KidsSolve at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And don't forget to check out our website, solveforkids.com, where we will have pictures of some of these bees on there on this episode page and also some more resources, including books that you can check out to learn more about bees.
0: And while you guys are doing all that, Mr. Jeff is going to be out there looking for a red bee right? and a blue bee yes. to make sure that Miss Julie was telling us <laughs> the truth about what's going on, and I know she was. Absolutely. Until next time, you'll hear Jen and Jeff on... Solve, Solve it, for it for kids! kids.